Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Everybody, welcome in. It's me, David Summers, hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Ron Fuller is or has been an entrepreneur, a businessman, a hockey team owner. As a championship wrestler, he's held every major title in every organization he's ever worked for. He's been a promoter and a wrestling company owner. He's wrestled the likes of Luthez, Jack Briscoe, Harley Race, Terry Funk, Ric Flair, and many other superstar names. He's known for his legendary relationship with Andre the Giant. He is also an author. A review of his new book, Brutus, has compared it to Jaws and is available on his website at tnstud.com or on amazon.com. With well over 20 family members in the business and a family that was in the wrestling business over 100 years ago, get ready to hear another story of wrestling history. As told by the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, please welcome the originator of the studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the super studcast. Let's step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, the man with chill bumps all over him just based on that incredible introduction. (laughs) <laughs> I think you really do pop a little a couple of chill bumps, man. I mean, I never realized I'd done all those things myself. You, you know? are a man of too it's, many when hats, you're talking Rob. about wrestling Luthez, you're taking me back into another era here, too, man. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> I don't have the gray beard and everything that I should have to be wrestling Lou, but uh <laughs> yeah, but I have wrestled Luthez, that's for sure. And so uh yeah, I really appreciate it. Great intro, man, and uh, thanks. Uh, good to good to have be back with you and back with Lou out there in San Francisco, and and uh, we got another good one for him today. Uh, really, kind of looking forward to it as always. Absolutely. Hey, listen, a lot's been going on, and before we find out where we're we're riding this week, let's talk about the most recent super studcast because it actually deserves two supers because it's like what four and a half hours long. Yeah. It's the longest one in, in history, longest of any Super Stud cast we've done so far. Four and a half hours to be exact. And I don't want that to scare people away because it's quality time. I mean, we spend a, a, as much as 30 minutes with each one of these people, and they have a lot they want to say. It's it's a tribute to Bob Armstrong, and uh, I'm really, really proud of this one. Uh, there's so many great stars in this one. Part one alone, there's Terry Funk, there's Jim Cornette, Jerry Briscoe, Stan Hansen, 
in just part one and in part two, you got Dutch Mantell that hasn't been released yet. Dutch right. Mantell, Kevin Sullivan, Jody Hamilton, the assassin, and Charlie Platt, who you know well as a former Southeastern commentator and one of Bob Armstrong's best friends. It's just a tremendous lineup. If you're into this podcast, I don't know where you'll get more stars than you're going to get in this one. And uh, and I, like I said, I'm really proud of it. And fans are just really, really, uh, really comments are just fabulous from it. So uh, I just uh, you know want to want to let people know kind of what is in this one. It's four and a half hours long, but uh, you know it's in two parts, and you can stop and go whenever you want to. Get them back and pick it back up again. It's a piece of wrestling history, is what it is. Uh, I think that's oh. the way uh, Jim Cornette described it, Ron. This is a historical <laughs> piece. You know, I was so. going to say, you got Jim Cornette, you got Terry Funk, two men who are not very shy at all. So those are two segments in and of themselves that are worth listening. And then you could take a break and then come back and, and check them out. But anyway, it's from what I hear, and I've only heard part of it, It's it, every segment is really exceptional. Yeah, I'm I'm proud of it, like I said. And, uh, you know, and, and we're talking about Terry Funk, he's where we are today. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? But, uh, you know, we're in 1976. and. So he's he's right in. He fits in perfectly with where we're headed today. All right. Well, let's let's mount up and roll. All right. So uh, we're going to saddle up today uh, for today's training. We're going to start with that first. And uh, this one's going to require us to, to wear more than one hat. I can tell you that I'm, I'm going to have to ask a favor from another territory, from another territory's owner. Uh, I'm going to have to talk to that territory's booker. I'm going to have to talk to that Territories TV commentator, and I'm going to have to have a conversation with the NWA world champion, uh, Terry Funk, about this particular uh, today's training. So, like I said, I'm going to put on a lot of hats in this one, and all of this is going to be done to present my Southeastern audience and my television audience with just five minutes of a promo, basically a five-minute interview. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, I got to call that extra good programming. And I doubt there's a whole lot of promoters around the country that went to this kind of trouble to get a five minute interview sent to them. I'm also going to be uh, out a little airfare on this one for a wrestler. I'm going to actually send a wrestler to another territory to w- hook up with uh, Terry Funk and send back an interview, bring it back with him, basically, to, to air with the Saturday following. So a lot of work in this one and, uh, you know, a lot of hats, as I said. So we're going to have a look at the Coliseum card also in this program uh, of Friday, September 24th, 1976. And it's going to feature the arrival of uh, yet another babyface newcomer. And this guy's going to hone his skills right here in Southeastern. And he's going to return to the territory he came to me from. But when he goes back, he's going to be a bona fide main eventer there. And then we're going to be taking a look at the great TV six days before this next Coliseum show that I mentioned on September 24th. And it's going to feature that five-minute interview I just talked about uh, that's going to be part of today's training. Also, we're going to have the introduction of a new heel in this stud cast that's going to eventually turn babyface, and he's going to become one of the all-time great stars of Southeastern wrestling. So um, we're going to get to all those people. And finally, we're going to get the results of this Coliseum show. And then we're going to talk the attendance. And we're going to end up this uh, super stud cast. And I'm ta- this is kind of a super stud cast for me. This is a really good one. We're going to end it up with the weekly learning tree question. Why did your USA Championship wrestling end so early? 
I had a, my fourth company was USA Championship Wrestling, and I did close it down after about six months. So uh, we're going to talk about that. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of my personal wrestling history in the answer to this one. So I really look forward to this one. And it's going to be interesting. I want to I want to hear that one as well. All right. Sounds like another great one, Ron. So what about today's training? Is that up now? Can't wait to hear how many hats you're putting on that big old head this week. Oh, wait, I, did, I didn't mean it like that, but. Well, they all fit, man. <laughs> you know, they're all the same size. They're pretty big, I guess is what you say. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I can count at least three of them that I'm going to have on today. So uh, I guess the first hat is going to be the old promoter's hat. Uh, only a real promoter is going to go to this kind of trouble, spending hours chasing down people, spending money uh, where it's not necessary. You know, maybe not necessary. You don't know when you're spending the money like this. And the many hours that's coming up that's going to take to just do a five-minute interview that, uh, like I said, most promoters would, would just say, well, this isn't worthwhile to do this. But, uh, you know, I really ha I feel different about it. But for me, you know, all this work, it's a, it's a small price to pay for something that's totally different that's going to further set the tone for this upcoming NWA World Championship match between myself and Terry Funk. Uh, it was worth twice what I spent and twice the time, to be honest with you. A five-minute interview, if it's done properly, can definitely make thousands of dollars of difference in the house. And especially when it's part of a tremendous long-running program like we've been having here with Terry Funk and I that leads to this world championship match. So this idea came from the promoter in me, but the owner in me going to have to put on his hat because he's going to have to do the work, you know. So I tracked down Terry Funk's bookings three weeks before this TV that we're going to be talking about by contacting Sam Muchnick, president of the National Wrestling Alliance in St. Louis. Before I got my question answered about where is Terry Funk, Sam, and I'd want to get in touch with him, Sam asked me of a, a favor, which I literally couldn't refuse, obviously. Uh, he booked me for a St. Louis show in 1977, which was just a few months in advance, to go into St. Louis and wrestle on a Friday night and spend the weekend there and, and, and play basketball on his wrestler basketball team against the St. Louis media team on a Saturday night. <laughs> Wait, wait. The president of the National Wrestling Alliance has an all-wrestler basketball team. <laughs> <laughs> well, not normally, Dave, but but in this case, he does. Obviously, he says he's been challenged by the St. Louis sports media. And, uh, you know, Sam Mutchick is a big wheel in St. Louis. He knew all these sports people. He actually worked as a sports writer for the paper there before he got into wrestling. So he has all these friends in the media, and they have a basketball team. And so they challenged him to put together a wrestling basketball team and see how they could do against his, their media team. So uh, to make a long story short, he already had booked. I mean, he told me, he says, Ron, I already got Big John Stud booked. I got David Von Erich booked. Now, there's a couple of guys that's six, eight or so, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Greg Gagne to be a guard, you know, and he goes uh, – and uh, he said, and he said, I got others that I'm going to be booking, but he says, I really need you. <laughs> wow. Said, I think you're probably going to be the best basketball player of the bunch. You know, he said, I need you for this game. So, you know, and, and, you know, when, when you own a territory like me and I'm a young guy 
and I'm talking to the president of the NWA, and he asked me to do a favor for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, well, what are you going to say, man? He's he going to tell the a- president of the NWA, no, Sam, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm too busy to do that. Right. So, so my answer is going to be yes, no matter what he asks me. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, I'm between a rock and a hard place. I got a feeling, too, he was envisioning you and Big John Studd as the Twin Towers. How tall did you say Big John Studd was? Yeah, he's up there about 6'8", six, 6'9". Six, he's about my height. He's a yeah. he's a big, tall guy and a big yeah. guy at that, you know. Uh, and I kind of figured, you know, but he's big. He weighs probably 300 pounds or more. I'd wrestled him a couple of times. I didn't think he was going to be a great basketball player because you got to go up and down the floor and you got to do some running. And I didn't know how good he was going to be at that part of it. So I kind of agreed with Sam. Yeah, Sam, sounds like you may be going to need another big man there. So, mm-hmm. so it's, we'll talk about that when when we get to that time frame, which is not that far ahead, actually, in the early 1977. Yeah. It, it, it seems like you it, you couldn't say no to Sam for more than one reason, long-term and short-term, and short-term especially, because if you don't play, you may not have an opportunity to get the world champion into Southeastern, into your market for a title. And you gotta, you gotta keep that on the schedule occasionally. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, uh, Sam happens to be the guy's book in the world champion. So if I say, right. Sam, I can't make that game. I'm sorry. He might say, well, Ron, I was about to send you Terry Funk again, you know, three months <laughs> down the road, <laughs> Right. but I think I'm going to pull him now. And <laughs> mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, Sam and Sam had kind of had me over a hard play, a rock and a hard place. I was kind of messed. I was in a position where I had to, I had to pretty much go play some basketball and do and wrestle in St. Louis too. So, so before you got an answer to your question, you, you were already committed to a basketball game. So in the meantime, your original question, you were going to be saying, where is Terry Funk on the week you needed him, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we finally got around to telling me, well, Terry, Ron, in the week that you're talking about's in Florida. I was like, cool, you know, because I happen to have a pretty good relationship with that Florida office. So I knew he was definitely, if he's going to be in Florida for a week, and he said he's going to be there all week, that he's going to be there in the middle of the week on Wednesday when Florida does their television. So I called Eddie Graham, and I asked him if he and Gordon Soley uh, would do me a favor. Uh, Would he allow Gordon to cut a special interview with Terry for my TV show that aired the Saturday after their Wednesday television taping and uh, send me that uh, interview? Also asked Eddie if he would book Carson, Don Carson, in Tampa on the Tuesday night before this TV, because I'm wrestling Don Carson that week. So I want to connect Carson and Terry Funk because of their bounty situation. So I say, can you book uh, Carson for me in Tampa on Tuesday night and uh, then cut this special interview for me on Wednesday morning before the rest of the guys show up there? to cut interviews. Uh, Carson was a big star in Florida. So Eddie didn't have a problem, obviously, adding him to the cart. And I told Eddie I could pay Carson. I said, I'll take care of Don Carson's airfare. And as usual with Eddie, he says, no, Ron, that won't be necessary. But uh, I didn't let him off. You know, Eddie was the type of guy. He wanted to do you a favor. He wanted to do it all the way. You know, so he's going to pay Carson's way down there and back, put him on the card, 
and then uh, not let me pay in the airfare. So I finally made him agree with me. We split the airfare for Don Carson. And then I then asked if uh, Carson could come down early, get up early the next morning, come down for their TV taping. And uh, that's when, like I said, they were doing that Florida Championship Wrestling Show every Wednesday. And uh, just get Carson hooked up with Terry Funk and cut me a five-minute video. I briefly explained to Eddie what I had been doing uh, in Southeastern to get set for Terry to come and defend the world title. And he was going to be working against me. And Eddie listened to it. Man, he had such a mind for the business. He was like, wow, he got it instantly. You know, he even complimented me. He goes, Ron, that's a hell of a program you got there. He goes, uh, he goes, and then kind of kiddingly, he goes, are you available to book down here? This is attention to detail. You've been working this plan for how long Month? now? Month? And so this is just the icing on the cake, and everything just looks completely legit because now you got – Don Carson in another market talking to your nemesis, Terry Funk. Yeah. And Terry's, Terry's going to be uh, offering him a big bounty if he can, if he can hurt me or just win the match. Right. You know, right. so, wow. so, yeah. so it made sense when I, when I get to this point, I didn't think of this months ago because, you know, a good booker, things change and, uh, and you get other ideas. And when I reached this point of this looking really focusing on this week, I say, man, why don't I send Carson to Tampa and let him sit with Terry Funk on the same set and <laughs> talking nasty about all these uh, Southeastern people <laughs> and really get some heat. And, and so, then on top of that, you did you bring Gordon Soli in on this too? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Gordon is a major part of this. Gordon is a part of the whole deal. So, wow. so next I have to – I get Gordon on the phone. I don't want to just uh, have Eddie say, yeah, Gordon, I'll have Gordon do it. I don't take a chance that Eddie may not have the time to tell Gordon what's going on. I get Gordon on the phone, personal friend of mine, has been for many, many years. In fact, he's going to become the commentator for my Continental and USA wrestling program down the line. Yeah. So I talked to Gordon with the same conversation, basically, as I gave Eddie. I tell him what the angle's about, what the program is like. And he, like Eddie, says, wow, Rod. You you really got something going, don't you, man? I mean, uh, you're going to draw a big house there, aren't you? you know? So so he promised to take care of it that day, and the day it was recorded. You know, Now I'm talking to him in advance. It's a, it's a week or so later before they're going to do this. Then I put on my booker's hat, and I, and I tracked down Terry. And I, I explained my idea to Terry for the interview, and he loves it. And then uh, everything is set up. But Don Carson, I, I speak to Don about it. I say, Don, I'm sending you to Tampa, and here's what you're going to do. You know, so that's how much time and effort was put into just five minutes going to go into the middle of this TV show before right. I wrestle Don Carson. And, uh, you know, when you do that type of thing, you have really you, – uh, you're going far to the extreme. You're really, really doing your job as a booker when you're going to put send somebody down there and do something like this. So, uh, and, at the, and at the same time, Don Carson was the courier. When he finished all of this, he was responsible for bringing the tape back. Absolutely. To, to I didn't have to worry about the shipping of it. And, the, right. and somebody lost the tape and it's Saturday. Where's the tape? Yeah. Uh, right. Don said, <laughs> I told Don, Don, you don't leave there without that tape. 
Yeah. yeah. He brings it back. So, you know, it was a lot of thought put into this process. Hopefully, you know, when that interview arrives, it's hopefully everyone is going to see in that interview what I saw in it, just sitting and thinking about it as a booker. This is, all right, this is trivial, but I got to ask. All right. So Don Carson's bringing the tape back. He goes through the airport. Did they they use x-ray on the tape or his bags or, and would x-ray affect a tape back then? Do you, do you remember if that was an issue? I, do you know, I think back in 1975 and 76, there were no x-rays. <laughs> I mean, you could go anywhere. All they did, they, they, they wouldn't even hardly check your bag, you know. Right. It wasn't airport security <laughs> yeah. as we know it today. Sure. So, yeah, they weren't x-raying anything back in those days. Uh, they were just basically getting you on and off the plane. They didn't care. We didn't have the problem that we had once 9-11 came along and it changed everything for us. I got a, I got a ton of questions about this, and including I'd love to ask him about Gordon Sully because I know he was such a pro. Did Gordon get it? I mean, when you got the segment back, was it everything you thought it would be? Because Gordon probably led everything on that segment. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, you know, of course it was. I mean, he was a consummate professional. I don't know that anybody was a better commentator than Gordon. He was just really, really sharp and and it was excellent. I mean, obviously it was excellent. And uh, and we're going to talk about it a little later in the program here. We're going yeah. to break that whole five-minute segment down and, uh, and, and learn what was in it, everything that was in it. That's awesome. Great segment of today's training, Ron. First time you have worn multiple hats. Can you tell us the Coliseum card for Friday, September 24th, 1976? And we're back to the Coliseum only one week after your Coliseum victory over Dory Funk Jr. in that Texas death match. Yeah, we're progressing toward uh, the world championship match with Terry Funk and myself. Junior's had two weeks now. He's been there. We both got disqualified the first time we wrestled each other. This time I beat Junior in the Texas death match. So, yeah, we'll certainly talk about the whole thing. A newcomer arrives on this card. Like I said, uh, Earlier in the show, out of uh, Mid-Atlantic Territory, Charlotte, North Carolina, working for the Crockett's. He's a young baby face. Uh, he's got a great amateur background. He'll go on to become a huge star for them in Mid-Atlantic. Uh, but he's going to basically hone a lot of his uh, talent right there in Southeastern, man. We're going we're gonna to make him a sharper damn wrestler when he leaves than what he arrived. Uh, this guy's name is Don Carnoodle. And he faces on his first night another young talent headed for stardom yeah. down the road as well. He's going to wrestle against David Schultz in the opening match. Two tremendous young wrestlers, both headed for stardom in the first match that night. Second match is uh, loaded with talent as well. The gladiator, Dick Steinborn, is going to wrestle the great Mephisto. The third match is really going to make the fans happy that night. This is what they'd been waiting for for a long time. Tor Tanaka, for the first time, is going to be in some kind of match against his former manager, Homer Odell. And this was going to be a tag match. Homer needed a new wrestler to manage, obviously, because he was down to just Tanaka. Austin had already gone. Now he's only got Tanaka. Now he doesn't have anybody. So Homer goes out, and in one week, he finds himself a guy. Uh, that's going to take Tanaka's place for him in the future. 
Tor Tanaka and Jimmy Golan are going up against Homer Odell and the wrestler who is destined to become a huge star in Southeastern for years to come. He's not going to leave, actually, from the day he arrives in 76 until 1979. And uh, they call this guy the fist of stone. It's Ronnie Garvin. Yeah. Okay. So this guy's going to shake up Southeastern wrestling really quick. So fourth match highlighted the same two guys the Friday night before that couldn't get their hands on each other enough. And that was uh, Mike Stallings and Louis Tillette that had a match together, the first match, opening match, and what a match it was. And then they get involved in a lumberjack match and get into it again. And I decide, you know, I'm going to move these boys from first match to a Texas death match on my next card. And so they're in a Texas death match on the same card. The main event was another bounty match. Plus, there was a lot more involved in it. Uh, Terry Funk had found himself another bounty hunter. And uh, this one had great history in Southeastern. For the first time, Terry's going to up that bounty from $5,000 to $10,000. He's just getting more desperate with each week now. We're getting very close. In fact, we're only 17 days away from me meeting him for the NWA world title. This wrestler that I'm going to be against, he's he's the guy who ran my brother out of Southeastern about nine weeks earlier. So this main event for all the marbles, basically, is going to be Don Carson versus Ron Fuller. Wow, that's a pretty good card. That's a big card right there. All right, but before we get to the results of this card, Ron, give us an idea of what was on the TV show six days earlier to promote this card. I mean, you've been setting us up with t- with really fantastic TV shows as a lead-in. We already know that there's a pretty special interview that's coming up, but what else happened on Southeastern Wrestling that day? We're, we're, no, we're talking Saturday, the 18th of September, 76. The TV show opened like usual, you know, with that tight shot. We were getting, we're opening all the shows now with this tight shot of uh, something that happened the night before. They opened up a list. He goes through the who's on the card while the camera's on that tide shot. And there's a patched up Homer Odell because Tanaka opened him up the night before. And the first time he got his hands on him. And uh, he's sitting there with all bandaged up. And behind him, standing behind him is a guy that's totally unknown to Knoxville people at this point. He's a blonde haired guy. He's solidly built. He's mean looking son of a gun. And his name was Ronnie Garvin. You know, Homer not just went out and found himself a guy. He went out and found him a hell of a guy. <laughs> he found a real good wrestler. Yeah. So as the cameras open up to full screen, everybody at home and everybody in the studio now can see what that still shot is on the big set behind Homer. Unless there was Homer being carried out of the ring on a stretcher. <laughs> And the studio crowd, that's first shot. First thing they saw was Homer on a stretcher, and uh, they were toting him out. And then uh, the crowd popped, man, in the studio. And Homer got immediately upset because Les started out showing that. So Les had the director, he just, he said, back up the video and let's show this whole thing. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Homer starts screaming, no, no. Homer screamed, stop the video. No, no, I'm not going to sit here and watch this, you know. And then he said, you know, I got much more important news, Thatcher, than, than, than what happened last night. He goes, and then he introduced Ronnie Garvin. He called him the fist of stone from Canada. And the man who was going to own Southeastern Wrestling and to destroy 
tore Tanaka for him. So he didn't spend much more time bragging about Garvin. He said, you know, Thatcher, I'm going to take this guy to the ring right now, and I'm going to show everybody what to expect next from the general, Homer Odell. You know, and so he says, from here on out, this man's going to do my talking, but the bodies that he's going to leave laying in the ring when he's done. So, <laughs> Ronnie Garvin didn't say a single word. He wow. has yet to speak, okay? But he's going to go to the ring and do his talking. Yeah, Homer's right about that part of it. So this first match followed. It was short, but it, but it certainly wasn't sweet, I can tell you that. When the bell rang, Garvin attacked the yet a young baby face opponent. I can't remember his name, who he was, but he was just a job boy, and uh, he was in a bad spot. And uh, right away, Garvin started pulverizing him. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, Garvin started pulverizing him, man. And he was hitting him with blows that you could hear on Les's microphone 30 feet away from the ring. Right. In the studio crowd, they were gasping for air after every blow. It sounded like Garvin was hitting them. They were all they were all turning and shrugging and jumping back and like, oh my God, this guy's he's a, he's a monster, you know. So when the opponent was just about totally unconscious, Garvin just drug him to the middle of the ring and he placed him on his back in the middle of the ring. He climbed up on the top rope and he jumped so high off the top rope that he hit his head on one of the lights that were connected to the studio roof. Wow. Which was like 18 feet in the air, you know? (laughs) And when he came down, he came down violently, man. And I mean, he drove his knee into that young wrestler's throat so deep it looked like it touched the mat on the backside of his throat. Like (laughs) he went all the way through his neck. And the studio crowd was shocked. They were just turning and looking at each other like, oh, my God, (laughs) what have we seen here, you know? So so Homer, boy, he was was happy. He just flew up into the ring, man. He raised Garvin's hand. He had a grin on his face a mile wide, man. And Les called for the instant replay. And uh, during the instant replay, Les drew particular attention. It was in slow motion, and they were shooting up into the lights because Garvin had jumped up into the lights on the top of the roof. And wow. it showed Garvin hit his head on one of the lights up in the roof level, you know. And uh, nobody had ever been close to that height in that ring. And nobody wow. had ever jumped that high. So yeah. the replay looked worse than the actual knee drop and live action. And Les, <laughs> Les and Phil Rainey are sitting there pretty much speechless when the replay was over. Like, good Lord. You wow. know, and so... I'd never seen a wrestler, a new wrestler, make such a crushing first impression as what Garvin made that day. And Les had to stop the tape because the kid was hurt, you know. He couldn't couldn't go on to the next interview. Uh, so he, he said, you've got to stop. Hey, Kincaid, we got to stop here. The, we got to get the kid out, you know. So the studio crowd was as silent as the unconscious young man that got stretchered out of there about 10 minutes later. I mean, they didn't know what to think. They had just seen something truly dramatic for them. So Homer and Garvin, they returned to the set for the first interview. And uh, Les asked Garvin two questions right off the bat, neither of which Homer allowed him to answer, by the way. Mm -hmm. And he asked him, uh, how did you learn to jump that high from the top rope? And, uh, and he says, how many people have you injured with that knee drop? <laughs> you know, 
And Homer just laughed, you know, saying, oh, wait until he jumps from the top rope in the Coliseum next Friday night, you know. Because <laughs> he can get a lot higher there, man, I can tell you that. So, you know, wow. it was quite a dang, it was quite a damned interview, and it was really quite a way to make an impression on the fans in the first day. Homer had another monster. I mean, you know, we all said, oh, Tanaka, what a monster he is for Homer. Homer had another monster all of a sudden, and this one was totally unexpected. Yeah, no so doubt. Wow. Jim Golden and his partner for the next Friday night tour, Tanaka, they're going to be live in the ring for the opening and the second match, and they're going to make short work of two guys just about the same length of time it took Garvin to destroy his guy. And Tanaka used the sleeper hole for the first time in Southeastern history. He won the match with the sleeper, and uh, it was a good fit for Tanaka. I mean, he had those big arms and that big bulky body, and I'm sure when he's putting sleepers on guys, uh, they were going out pretty quick. Jimmy and Tanaka, they joined Lester to set and watch the same video that Homer had denied Les to watch earlier. You know, this time Les got this one played though, and it picked up the action in uh, in the video after Tanaka had been hit with the southeastern belt by Homer for the second time in about four weeks, and the crowd in the Coliseum, when Tanaka got started on Homer, the crowd was so loud that you could hardly hear Jimmy describe the action. Just listen to the crowd noise in the back of the video. Yeah. Tanaka screamed something a couple of times. But as usual, you couldn't understand anything Tanaka said. So, But it didn't make any difference to the fans in the studio. By then, they were all Tanaka fans. They didn't care what Tanaka did. He was a big star. So Tanaka and Jimmy finished the segment with Jimmy saying how pleased he was about Tanaka being his partner rather than his opponent, <laughs> which was really true. <laughs> and, uh, and when they were going up against Homer and their new man uh, next Friday night, uh, he was looking forward to seeing what Tanaka could do to Ronnie Garvin. Man, what an impression Garvin makes, Ron. That, I mean, it's pretty awesome to come in and that quickly everybody's attention is turned and uh, that's probably kind of in the plan. He must be going to be something really special for Southeaster, no doubt about that. Hey, this is a good spot. Let's take a break right here. We'll come back. This studcast will continue in a moment. Super Studcast number 33 is a heartfelt tribute to one of wrestling's greatest stars and one of God's greatest men, Bob the Bullet Armstrong. Super Studcast number 33 is the longest ever at four and a half hours. Super Studcast number 33 is also filled with more wrestlers and those associated with the sport than any before it. Eight distinguished stars in all and every one of them eager to tell their stories, respect, and love for a one-of-a-kind man at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast we'll take you inside the hearts and minds of terry funk jim Cornette, jerry briscoe stan hansen dutch mantel kevin sullivan jody the assassin hamilton and charlie platt never has a tribute been as long and as complete as super studcast number 33 it is the final word in the life of bob armstrong don't miss out on this historical piece of wrestling history at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only $2.99 the best deal ever in wrestling hey everybody david summers we're back another studcast is on and you can also find all of these studcasts plus any super studcast at tnstud.com that's tnstud.com or patreon.com slash 
Studcast. All right, if I am correct, we are coming back with the personality profile, Ron. Was that special interview you talked about earlier going to be a part of this profile? Because this thing is really setting up big time. Uh, yes, it is, my man. Uh, very good, man. You, you're pretty astute today, Dave. I was on the profile. I'm on this one by myself with Les. Uh, he welcomed me, and then we got right to the point that Southeastern Wrestling had received a video from Tampa, Florida with Terry Funk. It was an interview done with Gordon Soley, Don Carson, and Terry Funk, obviously. So Les began this by apologizing to me for what had been going on for the last two months with Terry Funk, trying to avoid defending his NWA world title against me, offering money to anybody, uh, including fans, that could hurt me in some way, run over me with a car or whatever it was. You know, he's going to pay a bounty to him. And uh, and he said Southeastern officials thought this was, they were beginning to tire of it. And they, they thought that it was absolutely reprehensible and, and unbecoming of a world champion. But they obviously couldn't do anything about it because they didn't have any control over the, who the NWA world champion was, much less how he was going to act. Right. So he said, I want you to tell me how you feel about this. But first, he wanted me to see the interview. And then he asked Bill Kincaid to roll the tape, this five-minute interview. So Gordon opened it up with the three of them, uh, talking about uh, Funk on one side, obviously, and Carson on the other, sitting in chairs, similar to the same setting as we had for personality profiles. Uh, Gordon used some of the facts I'd talked to him about concerning the angles that we were doing for this upcoming world title match. He asked Terry Funk if it was true that he had put a bounty on Ron Fuller's head to stop him from getting the title match. Mm-hmm. Terry and Carson didn't answer. They both just had a big laugh about it. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, Gordon. Uh, so Gordon asked again, you know, he asked Terry, I think, a second question. You know, if Ron Fuller made it to the title match, which was only 16 days, from the date of this upcoming match, uh, Terry, uh, what else are you prepared to do? Stop Ron Fuller if Don Carson can't stop him. <laughs> you know, so Terry just laughs again, you know, like, oh, that's a big joke. Uh, who cares, right? So uh, Carson interrupts him in the middle of his laugh and he says, uh, you ain't going to have to worry about that, champ. <laughs> you know, Carson, the old cocky Carson, I, you know, I, I'm going to take care of him. Uh, the, yeah. You know, I want your money. So, yeah. <laughs> so Gordon continues. He said to me, he was speaking to me, you know, because he knew I'm wanting to be watching this, obviously. And he said, you know, uh, guys, talking to them, he says, I have a great deal of respect for Ron Fuller. He said, as a young man, I, you know, I watched him become a star in this sport right here in Florida, you know. And, and he added that he couldn't see any reason why Ron was not qualified to get a shot at the NWA world title. And for Terry to subject me to this gauntlet of opponents, paid to stop me, was <laughs> totally reprehensible for a world champion, I think. Wow, you Gordon was doing it right. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, it's like, well, what are you doing, Terry? This is absolutely ridiculous, you know. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. so, and then he finished with the fact that he felt both Funk and Carson were despicable and deplorable to <laughs> us. <laughs> And that he wanted nothing more to do with him. And he just got up, he took off his microphone, he dropped it on the set, and, <laughs> and he left. <laughs> so, 
So, and as he walked off, both Carson and Funk are laughing at him. Just, ah, ah, get out of here, Gordon. Get away. Leave us alone. We don't need you, you know. So now they got the party time, right? So Carson yeah. begins the deal, and he starts it pretty quickly. Uh, even before Gordon disappears from the set, Carson's already, you know, like, oh, boy. And he, he's all excited about the news that Terry's now doubled the bounty. From five thousand to ten thousand, you know, and you know he's he's wild. Terry, this is God. This is great, man. You know, is, did you really double it? Yeah, yeah. Terry's Terry. Yes, I did. I, I'm willing to pay ten thousand dollars to get this to happen. So, um, you know, so, so he thanked Terry for flying him in here. He said, "I want to thank you, Terry. You know, <laughs> for flying me down here to Tampa, man." He goes. Uh, he goes, you're making me feel important. I know how important this match is for you, you know, because I know you don't want to come down there to up there to Knoxville, Tennessee, and all that nasty people up there. And, you know, <laughs> he started into his stuff as as always, you know. So, yeah. so he thanked him for flying down there. And then he said, uh, you know, he said something about, boy, and I really enjoyed that private party we had last night, that tequila, man. And, celebrating the end of Ron Fuller's run for the championship. Right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're out there partying. And I can kind of see that. Terry probably did take him out on the town. And, uh, you know, so he guaranteed Terry that he had finally found the right man to get the job done. By golly, Terry, you've been offering these bounties and nobody's getting it done. You've got the right guy now. So he bragged about already running my brother, Robert, out of Southeastern Wrestling, when they had the loser leave town, okay. I mentioned that nine yeah. weeks earlier, he won a loser leave town over Robert. Robert was gone. And Carson even went so far as to ask Funk if he was going to pay him off in cash or some other way. How are you going to pay me? <laughs> some <laughs> so, other way. Ah. So, Terry, Terry quick, he got mad. Terry cut him <laughs> off right away. You know, and he asked Carson, he said, hey, don't you trust me, man, or what? You know, don't you trust my word? <laughs> so Carson began to back off, man. He started apologizing quick because Terry could probably be going to beat the hell out of him. <laughs> so Carson started, oh, you know, worried that he got it. He insulted Funk. He started saying, you know, I didn't mean it like that, Terry. I didn't mean it that way. Mm-hmm. So Terry kind of, you could see Terry was just enjoying watching Carson squirm. <laughs> Carson was Carson was wanting to back out of there real quick like oh boy why'd I say that so Terry took over about that point and he said you know he looked at Don and they they were still kind of laughing and they were really having a good time enjoying themselves and he said you know Don he goes guys like us are honest and decent men we shouldn't mistrust each other you know because <laughs> It's some redneck hillbillies up there in that southeastern part of the country that are ignorant and inbred that no one can trust. <laughs> so <laughs> now here he goes, man. He's he's following Junior now, man. So he goes, uh, they're lucky to even have a world champion like me. He said, much less one that's going to go up there and wrestle for him, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> so, and go to that horrible part of America, he said, that's filled with squalor and filth. <laughs> They live in up there. You know? Rats. <laughs> so, so, so then Terry he says, uh, he just makes it better and better. He goes, you know, Dory Jr., my brother, Don, he says, he, he was up there the last two weeks in a row. And he says, he said, uh, he told me 
He said he puked at the airport when he got there, and he puked again when he left. <laughs> he said just from seeing those Tennessee hillbillies running around everywhere, wearing rags instead of clothes, and speaking in a language that nobody knows and couldn't hear and ever heard of. <laughs> oh, boy, my. they are cranking it in, man. Wow. So the studio audience is right there listening to all this. <laughs> They're like rumbling, man. Oh, boy, this bad punk Terry's as bad as his brother or worse. So, <laughs> so, so Don interrupts him and he goes, you know, Terry, you, you're right. You and Junior both, you know, he said, it's absolutely disgusting having to live up there in part of the country. He goes, as, as soon as I get my $10,000 on Friday night, September the 24th, he goes, I'm going to move to Texas. With you. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, Terry got up, you know, and he, and he hugged Carson. He jerked Carson up on his feet and he hugged him and he patted him on the back. And he said, you know, uh, I'm sure I got the right man this time, Don. He goes, uh, you're just like us funks. He goes, better than everybody else, <laughs> just <laughs> like we are. <laughs> and, he, and, and he said, I look forward to you hurting Ron Fuller real bad. And he goes, and, and taking my money. You know, he said, oh, mind you taking my money when you hurt him real bad and, and getting rid of that hillbilly heaven up there, you know, and getting out of that hillbilly heaven up there. When you win and you get that money, I, I, I'm really looking forward to you getting out of that hillbilly heaven up there and coming on out to the real first class state of Texas. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> so the, the actual interview is a little longer uh, then the parts that I, I don't remember all the interview, there was a few more things he said, but some of those things he said really stuck out in my memory. Mm -hmm. So the segment had run a little longer than anticipated. So Les right. asked me, instead of giving them my comments at the end, did it, what if I would just mind waiting till the end of the program? And then he says something that's really critical to this whole deal. He goes, uh, the southeastern officials, Ron, have really been watching this situation. And, and after this, after they saw this interview, he says, uh, I think I got a surprise for both you and Don Carson that's going to be announced uh, real soon in this program. So mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, OK, cool. You know, I don't know what he's talking about, but, uh, you know, don't have any choice. We know he were running out of time in that segment. So then Don Carson comes out live in the very next match. Boy, when he entered the studio, those fans went nuts, man. <laughs> they already hated Carson, but my God, man, seeing him, uh, you know, uh, just the partners and buddies and friends with Terry Funk and them laughing and enjoying uh, what they're going to do to me, they booed him so loud. It was really amazing. Uh, that interview had gotten more heat than I expected. It was worth every penny I spent and the time I spent. Carson went to the set for the interview, immediately following his win now. And he's really, really so excited. He's seen the interview. He's, he's had everything has been going Don Carson and Terry Funk's way. So he's so excited about the interview. He began to, to brag about his close relationship with Terry Funk. Boy, you know, Thatcher, I've really got a friend now in Terry Funk. And, uh, and then Les just cuts him off. Mid-interview. Mid and Les looks at him very sternly, and he says, Don, mm. there's something else you need to be aware of in your match next Friday night with Ron Fuller. Uh-oh. And uh, Don kind of quiets, you know, and he, what are you talking about? And he says, the Southeastern officials were not 
nearly as happy about your interview with Terry as you are, you know, and he said, they told me to tell you uh, during this interview that since you had the opportunity to win $10,000 more than your normal payoff that you were going to get on Friday night, they thought maybe you should have to risk a little more in that match. So here's what is now also at stake other than your possibility of winning $10,000. Uh-oh. <laughs> and that's kind of Don's Don's right. Right. And, uh, yeah. So Thatcher says there's one other stipulation for this match with Ron Fuller, and it's a simple one. The loser of the match has to leave Southeastern Wrestling immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, and then he says, now your chance to profit comes with a downside, don't it? <laughs> because ah. if you lose, you don't get Funk's money. And you're also out of a job. <laughs> but you wanted to go to Texas, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, boy, Don goes nuts. The studio crowd erupted, man. It's like, wow, listen to this. And Carson did, too, except he was screaming, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and Les didn't even let him vent, man. He just said, okay, we're going to black. <laughs> Carson, we went out. Carson going, no, 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 no. We don't, don't do that. So it come time. At the end of the show, for me to get my interview finally, uh, and Louis Toulet had the last match on the program, and he got a win. So I started speaking, obviously, about the interview on the personality profile. I thanked, obviously, Gordon for his kind comments. You know, I really, really love Gordon. Uh, uh, and I congratulated both jackasses for their tequila party. <laughs> and I used that word, too. I said, I, and I also want to congratulate uh, you two jackasses, Carson, and, and for, <laughs> for your tequila party. And I said, uh, you know, Carson, I don't think uh, that, uh, that drinking that tequila is going to do a damn thing for you to be able to beat me. <laughs> and I said, also... The worst person in all of the southeastern part of the country was 10 times better than Terry Funk and Don Carson combined. And I said, I thank the southeastern officials for giving me the opportunity to send Don Carson packing like my brother did a few weeks back. Mm-hmm. And then yep. so I ended up with I ended it up with uh, it was it was really too bad. Carson wasn't going to get that ten thousand dollar blood money from Funk, I said. Because he was going to need it real bad. After losing next Friday night in the Coliseum, he'll need that money to get his belongings shipped to Texas, where he can stick his head up Terry Funk's rear end. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I got a pop, man. I never heard a pop like that either. <laughs> he'll need that money badly because he's going to have to go to Texas, man. He'll be out of here. Man, what a great visual. What a great TV show. So what happens? The following Friday night in the Coliseum. I, I can't wait. Well, Schultz, Schultz and, and Don Canoodle had a 20-minute time limit draw. It was a tremendous match. Boy, I watched it. I was like, these guys are going to, they got a f- great future. Uh, the great Mephisto beat the Gladiator. Tore Tanaka and Jimmy Golden won over Homer Odell and Ronnie Garvin. And Tanaka pinned Homer Odell after he chopped him up pretty good. He, he put the end to him. And, uh, then Mike Stallings beat Louis Toilette in the Texas death match. And uh, they were so good, that Texas death match, that I was going to bring them back. I brought them back the next week in another match, but it was just the opposite type of match from a Texas death match. This one is going to be an amateur collegiate rules match. Really? So something really unusual because yeah. those two guys somehow mesh really good. And I could just see 
that uh, I, there was more mileage in them. Uh, Carson and I tore the Coliseum down in the $10,000 bounty match uh, with the loser having at least Southeastern. Uh, and when I put the fuller leg lock on him, he gave up. And the referee, when he raised my hand, uh, the roof came off that building. They were uh, happy to see that I wasn't going to have to leave, that I still had that opportunity to, to get my hands on funk. And uh, and it was so crazy that when I left the ring, Carson was down seven. I had I'd put the fuller leg lock on him, and nobody jumped up from that very fast. Mm-hmm. And the fans started coming from upstairs, and they came from all over building. I'd never seen it. They surrounded the ring, and Carson's laying in the middle of the ring wow. by himself. Referee's gone. Everybody's gone. Uh, they were 10 deep surrounding the ring, and they were just laughing at him and making fun of him. <laughs> And then he kept trying to get to his feet, and then he'd fall back down. He couldn't get up. And finally, the police had to come down to the ring. They had to push the crowd back and work their way. A couple of them got in the ring, helped Carson up on his feet, and they helped him off to the side of the ring, and then they escorted him back to the dressing room. And wow. thousands of fans were just celebrating, man. It was crazy. What a crazy ending for the night. And the, the participation from the crowd, although not intended, that had to that had to be really charging. All right, that sounds like another great night for the fans. So you put a few butts in the seats that night. Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, you know, we were over four thousand, uh, kind of like the Coliseum show before. We're not going to be back in the Coliseum now for sixteen days until that World Championship match on a Sunday afternoon at three o'clock. And uh, when we get there for that one, we're going to set a new record for Southeastern in that building. Uh, we're going to definitely go over these 4,000 figures that we've been doing. And uh, it's going to be a great night for fans. There is a reason they call you the storyteller, dude. I was buying into that whole thing. That was an awesome job. Great stud cast. Stud. It is time for that cold drink. We'll take a seat under the learning tree again. So. Tell us once again where our question comes from today. Well, this learning tree question comes from a guy named uh, Kevin Humphrey. And he asked, uh, why did USA Wrestling end so early? And and I'm sure there's a great number of fans of USA Wrestling in the Knoxville area that wanted to know the same thing when I closed it down in the summer of 1988. Didn't actually close it. I sold it. But uh, that's kind of what happened. So to answer this question properly, I think the best way to put the f- the fourth wrestling company, that's USA Wrestling, that's the fourth one I'd built in my years in wrestling, uh, I think is a, is a good way to put this in, in real perspective, is to go back to the beginning and start with my first wrestling territory, Southeastern Knoxville. I established it, obviously, in October 1974, uh, after I purchased the rights from John Kazana. I owned 100% of the stock. A little over four years later, I purchased a second company, Gulf Coast Wrestling. My father had originally built that company starting in 1954. He sold it in 1958 to family members, the Fields Brothers. And 20 years later, I bought it from them in January of 1978. It was incorporated under the name Southeastern Wrestling Pensacola. It was set up as a totally different company, obviously, from Southeastern Knoxville. Mm-hmm. In October of 1979, I sold Southeastern Wrestling in Knoxville to Jim Barnett and Fred Ward, promoters out of Georgia, at the end of the Knoxville War. 
uh, Knoxville and was really getting murdered by this war. I could see that there was no future in it. And I was able, obviously, to find somebody that was willing to give it a shot. So I left Knoxville in November, a month later of 1979. I didn't come back to Knoxville for nine years. I moved to Pensacola, Florida, and I focused on building Southeastern Pensacola, that company that I had purchased down there. I received a down payment from Southeastern Knoxville, but I never got paid for the entire sales price that I sold that company for. Barnett came in there. He had problems creating the kind of success I had. And in a couple of years, he sold the territory, the southeastern Knoxville, to Black Jack Mulligan and Ric Flair, uh, something that he didn't even call me and tell me he had done. He didn't mm. say, hey, I just sold your company. I know I ain't paid you for it yet, but I sold it. So the basic fact was I was never fully paid for Knoxville by Barnett or any of the so-called owners that he sold to afterward who all subsequently failed in Knoxville, you know, probably by by, uh, 1980, uh, 81, uh, there was basically no wrestling in Knoxville anymore. Uh, This fact is very important as I continue to give you this brief history in Knoxville after this sale. So in southeastern Pensacola, I own 55% of the total stock, uh, which was a controlling interest at 50%. I had four partners, my brother, Robert, uh, my two cousins, Jimmy Golden, Roy Lee Welch, and Bob Armstrong. Between the four of them, they owned a combined 45%. Each occasionally sold pieces of their stock among themselves to the other three stockholders. I never sold any of my stock. In late 1984, due to the major changes occurring in the sport during that time frame where WWF owner Vince McMahon Jr. was just now getting started trying to do what he had in mind to do. Uh, we changed the name of southeastern Pensacola to Continental Wrestling. Now, it gave us a name that projected a larger scope and larger size, and it, it made us better suited to compete with WWF. Yeah. The stock percentage of ownership, it didn't change, uh, with the, and, and you know neither did the name. So there were some things that did change. It would affect the ownership. Uh, southeastern Pensacola had... Since its purchase, operated in the same cities, being run, as when Gulf Coast were purchased, you know, in 1978. So basically, we had run in the same cities since we bought it, with one exception, and that was the city of Birmingham. Southeastern Pensacola Corporation bought from Nick Goulas in 1981 the city of Birmingham and the rights to promote wrestling in the northern part of Alabama. That purchase was added to the value of southeastern Pensacola territory. Uh, When the name was changed to Continental, Birmingham was included in that as well. 1984's Continental Championship Wrestling was being formed from the southeastern Pensacola territory. I had the opportunity, the rare opportunity, to return to Knoxville as the sole owner uh, with an offer from a major TV station that wanted to put wrestling back on TV. Mm. They looked me up and said, you know, we we think we'd like to have you try it again. You know, you had great success, uh, and we got on a big station. It wasn't the same station, but it was another VHF big station. And so all organized wrestling had died there, like I said, for several years. And there was no wrestling on TV for probably a three- or four-year period. They were missing revenue, and that 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 had to be a lot of revenue to say, hey, let's get a wrestling show on. Yeah. 
you know, and and they were smart. You know, they they realized that you know Southeastern had been great when I was there, and right. they knew that I had owned it probably, and they they actually went to my my future hockey partner, and they negotiated through him. They hmm. said, "Hey, you know Ron Fuller? Uh, can you talk to Ron Fuller? We want wrestling." And so he gets a little piece of this arrangement because he negotiates the deal with him. So my future hockey partner, like I said, a guy named Bob Pope, uh, he negotiated a TV deal. And since Continental was forming, I offered my partners the opportunity to run Knoxville and the surrounding areas. So we made an agreement between my partners and myself that they would pay my future hockey partner, the guy that had helped us get the TV, 10% of the proceeds from each of the events uh, for the TV deal, for getting the TV deal. I, and I explained to them that I'd never fully been paid for Knoxville, and therefore it was not going to become a part of continental territory. It was something that I owned and 100% of, and and I'd never got all my money, and, and basically – so we agreed to split all the profit in the Knoxville area with the same current ownership split as long as the current relationship ran in Knoxville or until we sold Continental. Every one of us, we sat down and we all agreed. We added Knoxville to the Continental picture and Chattanooga as well. Chattanooga was run out of Georgia wrestling at that time frame. And, uh, you know, it didn't do as well as, as Knoxville did. And it wasn't long before we dropped Chattanooga in 1985. But the percentage of profit split with Knoxville continued until Continental Wrestling was sold to David Woods in the fall of 1987. My relationship with my former partners ended with that sale. I was a part of that company. We sold the company, and that was it. I realized what was going on at this point. I realized WWF and Vince Jr. was focused on destroying Continental and all the other territories in the country. Then that's why I was ready to sell. I could see what was coming in the future. However, at this point, I still own Knoxville. I didn't sell Knoxville. Knoxville was never a part of the Continental Arrangement. So I realized that, you know, Vince wasn't looking at Knoxville and that surrounding area up there. So I went back to Knoxville and I opened up uh, USA Championship Wrestling. Uh, I still own 100% of it. Mm-hmm. And then I took my partner uh, that uh, was going to become my future hockey partner, and I cut him in for a bigger percentage. So I decided to, to move back to Knoxville. I formed this last company, USA Championship Wrestling. Uh, Bob Armstrong's and his sons, except for Brad, were still working for Continental at that point. Uh, business was very bad in Continental at that time. Uh, it had dropped dramatically uh, so when I told Bob what I had in mind for Knoxville, he asked me if he, Scott and Steve, could go with me to Knoxville. He wanted to be the booker. And he'd been, you know, he'd been working with me as a booker for many, many years. He wanted to do the job by himself. And, uh, and he wanted to wrestle for me, obviously, too. So I asked him for, for nothing more than that. He asked me for nothing more than that. He said, Ron, just let me go there, be the booker, and let my sons go with me. So wow. the Armstrongs. They gave a proper notice to the Continental office and the Continental company that uh, I had sold out in, and they actually stayed there too much longer than they should have mm-hmm. after they gave the notice. They handled business properly with leaving there. So I know this journey kind of, ex- you know, to explain USA Wrestling, how it came to be is, is maybe a little bit long, but if you don't know how it began, then how would you understand why it ended? You know, so... 
So I, I've explained how it all started, and, and, and now I want to get to the answer in your question. The question the gentleman asked is, is why it ended so early. So USA Championship Wrestling was incorporated in 1988 and officially opened in Knoxville in February 1988. Gordon Soley was the commentator for the program. Obviously, USA was going to have great talent because already had three members of the Armstrong family when I opened the company. Also had Doug Furness, who was a phenomenal athlete, a University of Tennessee football player that went on to become a worldwide star. I had Nelson Royal, who was a great old timer and, uh, you know, could still get it done. I had Tommy, Johnny and Davey Rich. And I had a young guy named Todd Morton. Yeah. I had, I had a great baby cave crew. I also had lined up a pretty darn good heel crew. I had the Mongolian Stomper. I had Moondog Rex. <laughs> I had a Nazi trooper. And all three of those guys are managed by Ron Wright. <laughs> so, you know, I had I had some stuff going right there. I mean, Ron Wright by himself could have made all that work. But when he's got Stomper and Moondog and, and a Nazi trooper, I mean, he, he had plenty to talk about. So, yeah. And also yeah. had Buddy Landell, big star. I had Australian Bill Dundee from the Nashville and the Memphis Territory. I had Hector Guerrero of the famous Guerrero family. And I had a great heel tag team that were great workers. So now the complete stage is set to answer Mr. Humphrey's question. Why did USA Wrestling end so early? Everything was going good. We were drawing well. We were doing good. <clears throat> the short reason is the same one as the reason that I sold Continental, WWF and Vince McMahon Jr. I knew what Vince's end game was. I mean, he intended to end wrestling as it had been since my grandfather's day. Uh, he wanted to end the careers of hundreds of wrestling, talented wrestling stars, he wanted to end the careers of all wrestling owners and promoters. Mm. He wanted to end all wrestling except his own. And we all know what happened as a result of that. And the result is he took away from wrestling fans, especially in the South, the great wrestling they had grown up on. Yeah. And he replaced it with a far inferior product that had only survived because he didn't have any competition left. It was a sad deal. So later in 1988, WWF arrived in the USA area. So writing was already on the wall for me. You know, the end of wrestling, and as I had known it, and the generations of my families before me has known it, was gone at this point. And I couldn't deny that. I recognized that there's no competing with a national television program and with a guy that's going to buy all the talent that he can, and it's just not going to happen. So the result of what the sport was becoming at that time was something I no longer wanted to be associated with. Well, I was kind of lucky, and, and I was smart enough to sell out rather than be starved out, as a lot of promoters around the country were during this time frame. Yeah. I sold my part of Continental to David Woods, as I said earlier, in the fall of 1987. And then I sold him USA Wrestling in August of 1988. I never dreamed it, but less than two years later, I'm going to be involved in a totally different sport, hockey. You know, <laughs> and, 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 you know, crazy, crazy, Dave, you know, but uh, a sport that I knew absolutely nothing about, basically. But I'm going to have even greater success at that sport than the one my family was famous for. <laughs> you know, 
So yeah. like so many things I'd accomplished in my life, I would never look back. Man, that's another, and that's a whole, surely there's going to be a book or a studcast at some point about that hockey experience, because that is an amazing story. Another great one again, stud. Hey, on Facebook, become friends with Ron by simply liking the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page, and also the author, Ron Fuller Welch page at Twitter, Ron Fuller Welch there. Super Studcast number 33, the fantastic tribute to Bob Armstrong with eight wrestling star tributes is now available at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99 for four and a half hours. And back to Brutus for a second. Brutus, your new novel, it is really taking off around the world, Ron. Congratulations. Well, thank you, man. And, and and I'd like to say something. I'm going to do something special with Brutus here. I haven't mentioned Brutus very much, but uh, you know, I finally see that Brutus is a is a bona fide good book, a very good book. And uh, you know, some people say it's another Jaws. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, that remains to be seen, but that's certainly a very very nice compliment. So because the book is doing so well, I want to give everybody a chance to hear some of it uh, without having to buy it. You know. So I'm going to read a piece of the book live uh, on Thursday night, September 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. So I'm inviting fans out there that listen to please join me on my Facebook page. I have an author site. Yeah. And uh, on my author site, which is author Ron Fuller Welch, you go there, you uh, just like that page, and then you are going to be able to hear this live event that I'm going to do. And you'll be part of this, and uh, and you're going to get a first-of-kind of exposure to my action thriller, man. So if you've not already done so, I encourage you to go to, to like my Facebook author page, Ron Fuller Welch, and, uh, and join me and hear this first-ever live reading of A Part of Buddhist. So uh, join me, and I think you're going to get a real feel for this, what's becoming an extremely popular book worldwide. That's awesome. All right. So are you going to be wearing a sweater and smoking a pipe? <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Dave. I couldn't resist. And you're probably sitting near the fireplace. Oh, All right, I have a fireplace for that. Yeah, well, right. of course. All right. Another reminder. That's Thursday night, the 24th at 8 Eastern. And that's on your author, Ron Fuller Welch page. Is that right? That's correct. And just Got it. There, if you're not already a friend, be And uh, just like that page, you're going to be a friend and then join me at eight o'clock on the 24th. And uh, we're going to read a little Brutus. Are you going to turn the book around and show us pictures? Uh, I might do that. (laughs) You know, I might do that as a matter of fact. No, I'm only making fun of a six foot nine inch guy because he's he's 400 miles away right now. All right. Hey, that's a great idea, though, Rod. All right. So that's that's awesome. Where are we writing next? Well, we're going to have another great today's training session, uh, you know, about about the inner workings. We're going to go and deal with another part of the inner workings of the wrestling business, kind of like we did today. And so, you know, we'll be putting on a different hat and we'll have a different topic, but we're still going to be learning about how to make wrestling companies successful. We're going to discuss the matches of October 1st, 1976. Now we're going to be only 10 days away from the NWA world title event in the Knoxville Coliseum. We're going to find out how difficult it's going to be for me to get through those last 10 days. <laughs> you know, 
Terry Funk is not making this easy for me. So, and we will end with another late, great learning tree question, obviously. And then, in fact, you know, I'm ready to receive more questions on my Facebook and my Twitter sites for the uh, learning tree. So, you know, if you're a, a member of, you know, friends of mine on Facebook or you follow me on Twitter, if you'd like to leave those questions for me, go ahead and do that. Uh, I'm going to post some sites on all of my sites, all my three of my Facebook sites and my Twitter as well. And uh, just leave those questions on those posts. And uh, I really look forward to those questions. Uh, it's been a long time since I've had new questions. And I'm looking forward to seeing what fans have for me out there. Obviously, I want to thank everybody, Dave, that's, that's riding with us every week. And I want them all to take care of themselves and take care of others, too, as well. And uh, may God bless us all. You take care of yourself, Stud. God bless you, too. This is David Summers thanking you and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.